Welcome to the Podglomerate. If you don't look back and you aren't a little embarrassed, it means you aren't getting better. That's the way I look at it. Like, if you're not slightly abashed, if you're not slightly like, oh my God, I'd be so much better out, like, that's a good thing. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. Kyle is not available at the moment, so I'm going to record the intro without him, but he is in the interview that we have for today. That interview involves Mike Finkel, the author of True Story and Stranger in the Woods. Both are nonfiction books that resulted from very, very intense conversations with two gentlemen, both named Chris. Mike is a reporter that comes from the world of uh, nonfiction writing for the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, GQ, Outside Magazine, Skiing Magazine. He has a really interesting career. In early 2000, he uh, created a composite character for one of his stories in order to uh, you know, maintain creative independence. In exchange, he kind of um, took advantage of the, the factual a nature of the story and was very publicly fired by the New York Times Magazine. The day that he was fired from the New York Times Magazine, he got a call saying that there was a man on the FBI's 10 most wanted list named Christian Longo who uh, had murdered his family, moved to Mexico, and had been living under the name Mike Finkel for uh, the greater part of a month. Um, and he would only speak to the real-life Mike Finkel, uh, who was a New York Times journalist, uh, about his story. So the resulting episode of that was a book called True Story, which was later turned into a film starring Jonah Hill and James Franco. Uh, we get into the weeds as to like what that actually meant uh, for his career. Uh, so here is Mike Finkel. Thank you so much, Mike, for being on the show. And listeners can get a copy of his book, Stranger in the Woods or True Story, wherever books are sold. And you can find him online at mikefinkel.com. All right. Welcome to the show, Mike. So how have you been? I've been uh, a little topsy-turvy. Just uh, traveling with uh, three small children is uh, always, uh, how do we put this, a challenge, interesting, <laughs> some combination thereof. <laughs> are, are you in, you're in France, right? I'm speaking to you from just outside of Aix-en-Provence in uh, southern France, and I uh, just got back from Ireland. Nobody should feel bad for me, obviously, uh, maybe like <laughs> two hours ago with a four-day delay. They happened to have uh, like the largest snowfall in Dublin in 30-something years, and everybody just completely freaked out. I grew up most of my life in Montana, so it didn't seem like a big deal to me. But I'm telling you, the Irish, they, they do whiskey well, they do s music extremely well, but they just – something about snow and Irish people do not mix well well it, it's like the american south and are you on vacation are you writing out there are you covering a story uh here in france i am mm -hmm. sort of on i'm sort of living here um I'm, as a journalist i'm fortunate that i can pretty much any place in the world with an internet connection can be my office and uh, we've been out here for a couple of years um sort of giving my children a chance to explore another culture and we don't you know which sort of uh, we're a little we're a little footloose my wife's a professor and she, her job is uh, fairly portable and as a journalist as i mentioned i can live uh, le monde entier the world the whole world in anywhere in the world that's amazing i mean it's I'm, I'm a little bit jealous but i also can't complain because my job is a little bit mobile as well 
but why why don't you let our listeners know kind of who you are why you're on the show and uh how you got you know uh to where you're at today you know in in a french suburb uh bring your kids to school my name is mike finkel Uh, i have been a journalist i've wanted to be a journalist all my life but i've been a professional journalist for like uh 27 years i'm 49 years old for those of you doing the math right now. Um, I've written for everything from Skiing Magazine to GQ to National Geographic to the New York Times. Uh, I've had an up and down career, which we can talk about, but who hasn't? And uh, I've written a couple of uh, nonfiction books, one about a murderer who took on my identity, became a motion picture, not a great one, but an interesting one uh, with uh, James Franco and Jonah Hill. And I recently wrote a book about a hermit called the stranger in the woods. And uh, I'm a little nervous about the uh, title of your uh, podcast because I I actually live in fear every morning that I will become a writer who doesn't (laughs) write. But thus far, I am a writer who actually now and again writes. This show has become kind of an antidote because ever since we launched it, uh, we have, we have had no issues actually putting words to paper. So I find that that doesn't technically apply to uh, to even Kyle and I anymore, but definitely not to the guests that we have on the show. Okay, so there's nothing like the Sports Illustrated cover curse, like the moment you go on writer who don't writers who don't write. That's it. You're just done for life. You just that's you it. Know. It all just dries up. Yeah, exactly. Just, I live in fear of this. You know, the muse is a uh, the muse is like this uh, paper this rice paper thin thing. I imagine that could just you know a little splash of water and it just all goes away. I, and, and you think I'm joking, but I actually worry about it. Like I wake up in the morning, like ah, oh, that's it. Probably that's a lot. I can't, I'm done. You know, there's that Joseph Mitchell's, the story of Joseph Mitchell, the New Yorker writer who like came to the office every day for something like 20 something years and never wrote another article. And other people laugh and find that amusing. And I find that to be like terrifying, like right around the corner. Is that something that you wait for the inspiration to write, though, to start? No, I usually let panic override that because, um, okay. uh, you know, I have to pay bills. Thank goodness, you know, I have to pay bills. I have uh, deadlines. I have people leaving um, increasingly distressed messages on my voicemail. And so um, <laughs> if I waited for the muse, I would probably, it'd be like sort of a waiting for Godot sort of thing. Either Godot would never arrive. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, sometimes good enough is better than not at all. I, I truly have found, and I'm not even just saying this because of, of some need to validate this show, but I, I really do feel that the key that we have learned from all of these interviews that we've done over the years is just don't be lazy. You know, no matter what you think uh, is going to come out, you know, from your pen or your keyboard, it's probably better than not doing anything at all. And you're probably going to be more more satisfied with it than had you not done anything. So just push through and do it. Do you, do you kind of find that that's accurate for you? As I get older, which I used to, sometimes I would go to my office and sit there for four, five, six hours and not write anything. And when I was younger, I would come home from such a session and be really upset uh, that I didn't get anything done. And believe it or not, um, actually sitting there and not getting anything done, I believe, is getting something done. Uh, maybe I'm just fooling myself in my older age, but sort of uh, just like putting in time and thinking and even not thinking, even just like, I can't believe I'm sitting here in my office. I should be outside, whatever, doing It's such a nice day. It, it, there's something going on between the ears that I can't quite put my finger on, but uh, uh, a day that seems on the surface completely unproductive isn't quite that. I think there's something within the torture. So what you're basically, what, what I'm basically saying is, 
writing is a job and you got to put in the hours and even in, even a day with seemingly unproductive, something is going on. And I, I, I know it from experience, even though it remains not fun. There's a whole study a couple of years ago that was saying that, you know, basically creativity is oftentimes the absence of actually doing something. So when you're, when you're in the office for six hours, not doing anything, what does not doing anything look like? There's this, I don't know if it's kind of a, it's a, it, this movie is kind of a favorite of mine, though it's not the, uh, not the, the most uh, popular movie. It was called Adaptation. There's a funny scene in there where, um, um, what's it, uh, who's the star on that? I'm sorry. I've just, like I said, I've come back from Ireland. Uh, Nicholas Cage. He's playing two characters. Yeah. So Nicholas Cage, the writer, like he sits down and he puts his fingers right on the keyboard. And he's like, okay, I'm going to start writing. And he's like, uh, Man, a muffin would be really good right now. I think it might even be the opening, one of the opening scenes. Like, oh, I, I really like a muffin. I'm going to go get a muffin. And he goes, gets a muffin. He sits down. He's like, oh, man, my bathroom's dirty. I think I'm going to clean my bathroom. I, I felt like of all the of all the scenes of writers, quote unquote, not writing, that one produced like rather than humor, which is really funny, but struck me right in the heart because that's exactly it. Like everything else in the world seems much more important than writing. Like, oh my God, I didn't pay that bill from seven months ago. Oh, my Netflix account is overdue or something like that. Just like every little thing. And that's what not writing is like. It's almost a bizarre state of uh, micro BS uh, overtaking the, the, the main task at hand. That's what it is for me. And the story is always there, just simmering in the background. That's the hope. Um, it, you don't actually, you can't actually, the, the frustration, I think, is that you can't see it simmering, you can't feel it simmering, and you don't actually know it's simmering. And as I was trying to say a little bit more, just through years of experience, I realized that it is simmering. But boy, it, it, when you get frustrated, you're sure it's not. But then the next day... You sit down and it's as if work was done the previous day and you can't believe it. When you're in the throes of it, you can't believe it. But actually, yes, work is simmering in the background, but silently and odorlessly. So, <laughs> so it, it, yeah. in, in terms of... It will kill you eventually. Yeah. In terms of, you know, for the sake of roping this in a little bit, uh, you, you, you touched on a couple of the outlets that you've written for in the past. You know, the New York Times Magazine, Outside, Skiing Magazine. Uh, and, you know, if you were to look at a list of all the publications that you've written for, it would really show that you're kind of like, uh, you know, an outdoorsy writer. Um, and, you know, you're very much in the vein of, uh, I, I, I can give you a million examples. I don't know if any of them would be relevant to this discussion, but you write for a lot of uh, publications that are more about like going out and experiencing something as opposed to, you know, the theory behind that same thing. Uh, was this, were these outlets chosen because of the way that you write or do you write because of these outlets? You know, kind of which came first? Yeah, I mean, I've always said that, you know, above the shoulders is only like 10% of your body. And I cannot ignore the lower 90%. I'm energetic person, I'm perhaps annoyingly energetic. And so I, I need to get out there and exercise. I am not a fiction writer. I just can't uh, uh, sit there. So yeah, I need to I need to pay a lot of attention to the lower 90% of my body, meaning I need to be out there, you know, hiking, moving, doing something. And so I, I believe that it's just been a nice fit because I'm curious about the world and everything in it. And I just don't have the 
mental or physical makeup to just sit there and write. I have to, I have to, I have to get out there with the scientists. I have to, I, I like to travel. I love to meet new people. I'm a natural born uh, journalist. And so I don't know, it's some sort of mind body melding that works for me. If that makes any sense. That's great. And, and, no, it does. And I mean, did you grow up like reading that kind of stuff as well? Or is this kind of like an evolution of how you experience life as a person that leads into journalism? I was a pretty voracious reader as a child. Uh, and absolutely as a, as a boy, a boyish boy, I certainly, um, you know, Jack London-y things and, you know, adventure stuff, anything where uh, people were either about to die, did die, or should have died, you know, sort of, uh, uh, I can't help it. It's sort of a primal, uh, primal attraction to me. So I would say, yeah, of, of course, that doesn't mean I didn't read uh, poetry and Shakespeare and things like that. Although there's a lot of action in not only near death, but absolute death in, in Shakespeare. I, I, yeah, I like, I like action. Why not? I admit it. Mm-hmm. And and who are the who are the best like writers that are doing that today? I mean, we had Blair Braverman on the show about a year ago, uh, and I think that I, I would have to double check our archive, but we've had a couple writers that really focus on the same kinds of things as you. Yeah, I mean, I just read David Grand's new book, uh, "Killers of the Flower Moon." He's he's really extraordinary. Um, I like David Quammen, who also lives in my hometown of Bozeman, Montana. David Quammen, he writes a lot about uh, environmental issues and uh, is also an amazing traveler and beautiful writer. It's funny, I mentioned uh, Susan Orlean uh, for the movie adaptation. Everything she writes to me has this beautiful poetry uh, about it. Um, I I feel like there's a guy that I feel like most younger writers don't know, but his name is John McPhee. He's uh, one of the most influential mm-hmm. nonfiction writers um, in my life, uh, wrote uh, many, many books I would recommend starting with Coming Into the Country, which is about his uh, time in Alaska, but a beautiful nonfiction writer, John McPhee, uh, I think still a professor at Princeton University, um, n- not a young man, but sort of, uh, I think, possibly a pole star for many, uh, many adventurous journalists. Before we get too far into the rest of the interview, I wanted to circle back to talk about uh, how you made the transition from uh, where you were. You said you started doing journalism 27 years ago, which by my calculations would mean you were 22. And I'm guessing that's right after you graduated. I think one of the more interesting stories we always talk to journalists about is how they got their first professional assignment and what that journey looked like going from something that you've always wanted to do and something that you've studied for a long time to something that you're actually getting paid to do. Um, so can you tell us about that first assignment, what that transition yeah, was like? Yeah, in fact, 27 years might be an understatement. I worked on my high school paper and I worked on my college paper, the Westward of West Hill High School and then the Daily Pennsylvanian <laughs> out of the University of Pennsylvania. And so I feel like, I, especially with the Daily Pennsylvanian, which came out five days a week and was 20-something pages long, it's a, it, was, it is perhaps the, the uh, third largest paper in Philadelphia, uh, felt like a full-time job. So the transition from being uh, to, to being a professional journalist seemed very... Uh, subtle. I, I mean, what was my first assignment? I remember, I think I got paid for the, f- there was like free weekly papers. I mean, all these cities used to have free weekly papers kind of um, 
I think it was called City Paper. It was sort of like the Village Voice, but th- these have sort of gone by the wayside with with the internet. I'm I'm that old, but I think I got paid like twenty dollars an article to write uh, various and sundry strange articles for the. Uh, for the city paper, I think I once sat in the very last row of a, of, a, of the football stadium for an Eagles game just for the see who had the absolute worst tickets, but were still in the stadium. And then I think I wanted to see if I could stay in my apartment for a weekend and have everything in the world delivered to me. Just kind of oh, I, I think I donated sperm at a sperm bank and and de- and you know detailed that. And this was all twenty bucks an article, and I you know. That was good beer money at the time. And so the transition, you know, I was making, that's professional if you're getting paid for your work. Um, And so it felt like a very smooth transition. But my first real job in journalism was for skiing magazine. Uh, At the time, it was located in the heart of Manhattan in New York City. Seems seemingly incongruous. It's now in... uh, it's now more or less out of business, but the they moved it moved to Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was it was sort of a. I, I feel like I've been a full time journalist since I've been in high school on some level. I even in college, uh, I think the uh, staff of the newspaper prided itself on having a lower GPA than the football team because we spent so much time working on the newspaper, and and it really did. It felt like what I did in college was work for the college paper, and I took classes when I had a chance. And how did that translate to actually getting uh, articles published in publications that were paying you for it? Like, was there was it the sort of network that you built while you were doing reporting for the college paper? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely. Um, I mean, boys and girls are listening. Your grades don't really matter at college. It turns out if you want to be a journalist, I don't think anyone's ever asked me like, "Oh, what's your." transcript what did you get in history or you know physics that time i don't think literally uh, no one has ever i can't believe i've worried about getting any good grades i'm sorry parents that are listening but it's true um yeah there's uh, a lot of people worked on the daily pennsylvania and made their way into journalism and there is of course as with every profession a degree of nepotism in place. Uh, oh, you went to Penn, we'll give you uh, your first job. I think after that, if you fall on your face, you're not going to, you're not going to get anything. But yes, uh, I, I, skiing magazine, there were no connections. The only reason I got a job at skiing magazine is that I love to ski and I'm half decent at it. And uh, I think, I think a bunch of the staffers one winter had torn their knee up and that was, I took advantage of people's ACL tears to get a, the lowest level staff position on skiing magazine. But I think there was only like a dozen people on the staff. So it's even the lowest uh, person on the totem pole had access to the editor in chief. At the same time, I was also offered a job, I remember, at Sports Illustrated magazine. Uh, Of course, the famous Sports Illustrated with hundreds and hundreds of editors. And it was actually a very strange decision. I chose Skiing Magazine for less money, certainly less prestige over Sports Illustrated because I felt like I might actually have a chance to write for Skiing Magazine where the path to getting published in Sports Illustrated seemed arduous and unclear. And in my case, I really wanted to be a writer, not an editor, perhaps was the correct decision. Huh. Well, that that is really interesting. And I mean, it shows one thread of of where I wanted to take this. But, you know, how did you kind of transition to the point where you were writing for like Esquire, GQ, the New York Times Magazine? Uh, Because that it seems like, you know, not to say that Skiing Magazine isn't, you know, a large respected institution, which it's not, you know, it, 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 it is for certain people. <laughs> it's a but, small respected uh, institution. Let's go with that. Okay. Now, that, that narrowly works. respected. But like how, 
Yeah, it, it's, you know, you, you read it in the ski lodge, you know, a couple months out of the year. But I, I actually, very curious, uh, totally unrelated, but like what big, what, what's the readership of Skiing Magazine like in like June or July? Um, it only came out, I think, uh, so zero, because I think it only came out, uh, this, remember, this is, this is, this is in the 1990s. It, I, I, I think it came out nine times a year, maybe eight times a year. It came out uh, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, and then didn't come out during the summer. Um, but we worked on. So that's so that's why you took the job because you you got summer breaks, but uh. <laughs> it actually didn't work that way. It's funny we put together all no. the issues during the summer, but the reason why I took the job was was similar to that. But we got winter breaks. We all took all winter off and went skiing like crazy, which I love to do, and then wrote up all the articles and put together all the issues during the non heart of winter months. It just, it sort of just seemed that way when it was coming out in the newsstand, but all the issues had been put together several months uh, previous. Huh. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, that is, that's smart. And so how did, how did that transition work? How did you kind of like continue to, to leapfrog? Yeah. You know, I've always, I've been ambitious and I wanted to be a writer and I've always been blessed with the ability to generate ideas, which are, which is quite quite a commodity. Uh, you, I, I mentioned uh, Sports Illustrated, though I didn't take the job there. One of my first non-skiing magazine gigs was writing weird sports stories for Sports Illustrated. Uh, I wrote about competitive skydiving. It was sort of like you did acrobatics. You jumped out of a plane and did acrobatics. I remember I did a, like hot air balloon racing. I covered the world championship of pinball. Um, I started writing about mountain biking right at the very early days of mountain biking, which was thought of as a fringe sport. And they were all, oh, this is sort of, it was frustrating at the time, but it turns out to have possibly been quite helpful. They were all one page long towards the back of the magazine. And that's a very tight amount of words. It was like 720 words. And I would go spend like a weekend at one of these events, interview 100 people, have enough to write like a small book, and I would have to write 700 words. And this is pre-internet when I think nowadays writers maybe aren't so used to being very tightly chopped and edited. And I think it, though I found it very frustrating at the time, so much good stuff ended up on the cutting room floor. I think having that experience made me weigh the importance of uh, every word and not wasting people's time. And so I, you know, I worked a little bit for uh, Sports Illustrated doing these one pagers. I never progressed any further than that. I was never invited to you know, be their basketball dude. Um, and, but this was also the age when a lot of the adventure magazines were starting up outside men's journal, even National Geographic Adventure. And I just happened to you know, a lot of luck is involved in one's career. Just, you know, as these magazines were starting up, that's what generally I was interested in and was able to get smaller stories in, in those magazines, especially National Geographic Adventure. May she rest in peace. But I was able to do some great adventures for them. And then some of those, eventually I got tired of what I called white guys in Gore-Tex stories and wanted things to be a little more serious, like actual real life. I don't want to denigrate it by saying adventures, but like people that are, you know, taking uh, refugee boats from Cuba and Haiti to try and get to America. That seemed to be, if you look at it in a certain lens, adventurous, but it was life or death and way more important than white guys in Gore-Tex. And that was my transition into harder and more important news stories. So it felt semi-organic to me, although it might seem a little herky-jerky from a, from a, from a couple feet distance. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It's like you went from leisure to national issues through the lens of of adventure on both ends. Um, and I, I 
I do want to touch on uh, because it will, you know, kind of influence your later career. But I do want to touch on what happened with uh, your story, um, and and what happened with you at the New York Times Magazine with the kind of threading together of the false narrative. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, kind of, to explain like what specifically happened uh, and like what rule was broken, and then what resulted from that. Uh, and if, if you don't want to talk about that, it's totally fine, but, uh, I thought it might, you know, kind of be helpful. No, I think this is a very important thing to talk about. I'm certainly, um, not happy to talk about it, but I recognize as a fellow journalist that it's important to talk about when I was, uh, about, uh, 30 years old. I had a, I was working for the New York times magazine covering really interesting stuff. Um, conflict in the Middle East. I even had, uh, right after September 11th, 2001, spent a better part of a year in Afghanistan. But one story was my downfall, and it was a story about chocolate and slaves in West Africa, an explosive combination of words there, chocolate and slaves. It turned out that a lot of young um, laborers on the coca plantations of West Africa, coca being the main ingredient in chocolate, were supposedly being held in slave-like conditions, uh, working for working very hard without without pay. And I went to uh, the the Ivory Coast, where most of these plantations were. And as is often the case, uh, reality is much more complicated than. Um, two or three quickly shouted words like slavery and chocolate. turns out these were, it was poverty. These are very, very, very poor laborers, mostly coming from Mali and even poorer countries than uh, Ivory Coast. And they were being paid, but sometimes only once a year when the crops were being harvested. But this is when the plantation owners were being paid. And if the crops failed, nobody was being paid. It was a very complicated story. And the uh, in gathering the interviews, there was a, sometimes a, a chain of translators from a tribal language to a, to a general language like Swahili to English and back. And so everything was very difficult. The uh, young laborers were extraordinarily shy. No excuses here. Um, just telling you how it was on the ground. And when I got back to write the story, I created what's called a composite character. I took real quotes, actual interview snippets from many different laborers and combine them all together to make what's called a composite character, a representative boy. And this unto itself is not a terrible thing so long as you make like a little note at the top of your article and say, uh, hey, this is a composite character. Now, the New York Times does not allow you to do this even with a note. But other magazines, more creative-minded uh, magazines like an Esquire or even perhaps a GQ would let you put an italic to, italicized explanation at the top of the article. Well, I didn't. I lied to my editor about it being a composite character. I just handed it in. I thought the article would read much more simply, much more smoothly. And the, the information I convinced myself that inside the article was all true, it's just the way I put it together, would allow people to read it as opposed to get uh, lost in a sea of unfamiliar names and uh, just turn the page and not learn about this sort of what I thought was a, an important topic, which is, you know, the dividing line between, you know, poverty and slavery and, you know, how does the world actually work? I feel like I had important things to say and didn't want to, didn't want to overwhelm the reader. And, uh, I, I had, the story was printed with this composite character and I was caught actually one of the aid agencies that was promoting the slavery uh, angle was very unhappy that I was said it was a little more complicated than that. Researched my article. I was caught for my deception and basically for lying to my editor and making a composite character. And I was fired from the New York Times. And that was sort of the 
dividing line between my career. It was a very fraught moment, as I may have mentioned. I really have, I really have no skills in all the world uh, except for listening to other people talk and jotting it down and arranging what they said in a pleasing order. And I thought that was the end of my career. And I am very fortunate that it was not. So what you're saying is you created kind of a composite character based on a number of people that you had spoken to in order to kind of like get across this message that, you know, you felt was really, really important for the reader to have, but you felt that it was kind of clouded if you didn't create that kind of composite character or is this kind of, uh, like what made the story? Yeah. Work? I mean, I basically let creativity trump factual accuracy. Uh, unfortunately, there's only two categories of writing, fiction and nonfiction. And I've always felt that that was a little bizarre. What if there was only like two kinds of food, like Chinese and Italian? Like what, you know, where, you know, where, where does French food fit in? Is it Chinese or Italian? Where, you know, it's like, it, it, it's, it's kind of bizarre to me because isn't most writing somewhere between the two? Anyway, um, yes, I, I used very creative fictional methods to impart a factual story, but that does not work in journalism. And in fact, I learned ever since then, I've had this bizarre, it, basically that incident with the New York Times where I thought I was going to not be able to write again, made me a much better writer and completely changed my understanding of nonfiction. I've been, uh, ever since then, I thought, you know, people, magazines gave me a second chance. I'm like, thinking I cannot mess up at all. I'm like the one journalist that has already been given his last, uh, his, you know, his lifeline is his last chance to, um, you know, you're not going to get a third chance. And my articles since then, I would love everyone to know have been not just factually accurate, but I've like hired on my own dime fact checkers to check everything. And if anything was like 96%, 99% certain, that's not good enough. I've been cutting it out. There's been this weird understanding that, uh, that, that uh, nonfiction can have this sort of pleasing, like not everything has to be clear. Like you can just leave things uh, the two books I've written, there's some you you can close the book and you'd be like, wow, I I really don't know a lot of answers, and that's the way life works. And I actually, rather than feeling like I have to answer all the questions, I'm just going to put it all out there. That's true, and unfortunately, life is messy and not tied up in a bow. And uh, to my surprise and delight, people have responded generally positively to to journalism that isn't that doesn't make grand conclusions. I just throw things out there that are true and let the reader come up with his or her own conclusions. And it's, it's made me a better writer, a different writer. And um, gosh, I'm, I feel like I, I have this sort of understanding of, of, of nonfiction and journalism that I would never have had if I hadn't, didn't have to go through the, the trauma mm -hmm. of, the, of the New York Times firing. I mean, to, to be to be fair, I actually read your new book, Stranger in the Woods, before I knew uh, this story. Um, you know, it turns out I, I was aware of it. I just didn't realize that it was you that it had happened to. And I, I remember finishing Stranger in the Woods, which is your new book, and being like really surprised at how much of the book you dedicated to uh, talking about the structure of your reporting and where all the information had come from. So I, I can say that, you know, at least according to this particular book, you have 
have really stepped up your game in that regard. As I mentioned, you know, there's no there's no third chance I'm gonna going to ever have. I hired uh, out of my own pocket, uh, two, you know, two independent fact checkers to go through everything in in my latest book. And uh, I could I, I could have bought a new car, but instead I I gave it to fact checkers. Um, and it's it's essential. It made the book better. It made the book more accurate. And the story is so freaking unbelievable that you have to know. You have to know that this is true or else the whole thing falls apart like a house of cards and the story is true. Well, I'm sure we will get into bits of it eventually, but thank you. Yeah, the, the, my, I'm, um, I, I, I pride myself on being as accurate as humanly possible. I'm, I'm human. I'm sure I've made mistakes, but uh, certainly nothing intentionally uh, as with the New York Times incident. And, you know, that was at this point six, 17, 18 years ago. It was in the year 2000, 2001. I mean, even so, even even knowing that, having just read the book as well, even knowing that you hired two independent fact checkers to to comb through the book with what I would assume are the finest tooth combs, it is so unbelievable. This story of this man um, who's <laughs> I still, on some level, just viscerally cannot believe that someone would do that. Would you mind walking us through the concept of Stranger in the Woods just quickly so our listeners can uh, catch up? Yeah, in a nutshell, it's about a, a story about a man named Christopher Knight who quit the world at age 20 and lived in a camping tent in central Maine for 27 years, during which he spoke, had no conversations. He said one word, hi, to a passing hiker one day. He never made a telephone call, never spent any money. Get this, never lit a fire, and Maine winters are just brutally cold uh, for fear that smoke would give his campsite away. And in order to supply himself with food, clothing, and reading material, he broke into these uh, summer cabins that were never occupied when he was uh, when he broke into them. And he broke into them carefully, no smashing of windows or kicking in of doors. He had a Houdini-esque ability to pick locks. He would go into the cabin and take uh, like your hamburger meat, your flashlight, and your um, all your books, but he wouldn't touch your TV, your computer, your, you know, your jewelry or your camera or anything of, of monetary value. And then when he would leave the cabin, he would, if possible, he would set the front door to lock behind him so that it was locked up tight and no real thieves could come in. And this happened for 27 years between the age of 20 and 47 until he was finally arrested breaking into a summer camp that was closed for the season. That's the nutshell. But the craziest part is that this is not when I when I initially heard the the slug line of this man who lived in isolation for twenty seven years, it's not like Into the Wild where he uh, ventured out and tried to survive in the wilderness. He was living so close to people that he literally could not light a fire for fear of discovery. He's around the corner, basically. Right. Uh, this is a person who he was. I, I think what makes the story very interesting is that he's not obviously crazy. He's highly intelligent. In fact, possibly uh, has a genius level IQ, just wanted very much to be completely by himself. And I think sort of the deeper theme of the book is like, what do you do with someone who doesn't fit into society? And if you're an obvious criminal, like a murderer or something like that, then we have jails for you. And if you're completely crazy, then we have mental facilities for you. But what if you just want to be alone? And throughout history, from beginning of recorded time and before, there have been people that have wanted to be alone. And some of these people have been the uh, some of the most intelligent uh, artists, philosophers, scientists, physicists in the world. There's this sort of very odd... Uh, 
hand in hand, uh, high intelligence and the desire to be around no one else has has happened. And, but we don't have any place in society. And this guy just wanted to be by himself. And you're right. He was just a couple minute walk from uh, these houses, which during summer were, were filled with people. And he never once, never once, never for a minute, never for just just never said hello to anyone never took a sh- never took a, a shower indoors just just by himself and, and 27 years is an unfathomably long period of time and i know people are are thinking like this this can't possibly be true because if you think about it like you know solitary confinement is the worst non-lethal punishment we have in the american penal system and this goes this is antithetical to almost anything any of us feel and yet uh, this story as as we went over uh, a little ad nauseum before is absolutely true Writers Who Don't Write is supported by CastBox, the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on iOS and Android. CastBox has been downloaded more than 15 million times, and you can listen wherever, whenever. CastBox has also pioneered a brand new way to search. All you have to do is enter a keyword or phrase, and CastBox will search all show titles and transcripts of every single episode to deliver you exactly what you're looking for. So head on over to the App Store, download CastBox, and try it for yourself today. So this is not your your only experience writing about somebody who's a, a pretty prolific criminal. Um, can you on the on the timeline, looking at it from afar, it looks like True Story, uh, which is the movie that was based on your book, led pretty directly to this opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about how that led to this? Okay, I think True Story needs like a forty-five second introduction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't this take is longer an, if you want they're both this is another story that I uh, that is completely true and yet uh, uh, you're gonna you're gonna throw your whatever you're listening to your device across the room in, in disbelief uh, just as I was getting fired by the New York Times for you know falsifying an article I found out again this is true that a guy who was on the 10 most wanted list right next to Osama Bin Laden at the time had just been arrested in Mexico this was a man named Christian Longo, who is wanted for murdering his wife and three children, pretty much the most horrific crime you can imagine. And I, I can't even tell you, every time I imagine it, I get this crazy full body shudder because right in the next room is my wife and my three children. Um, he was arrested for in Mexico uh, for the murder for these murders, pretty obviously guilty. But while in Mexico, he had been telling everyone that his name is my name. His name was Michael Finkel and that he was a reporter for the New York Times. I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. He, he took on my identity. And after his arrest, the only person he, he would talk to, you've got it, was the real Michael Finkel in which he told me, oh, you've just lost your job as a New York Times reporter. Well, guess what? I'll give you the scoop of the century. I know that anything you write from now on has to be completely honest. How about this? I'll prove to you my innocence and that's the setup i mean it's it is truly unbelievable and and in the in the film uh they had jonah hill plays you in the film and he got the phone call from the portland oregonian the same day that he was fired from the times was that hollywood or is that actually how it happened it's like i it's not sometimes i gotta tell you guys when i sometimes when i tell this story i'm like i gotta make this like less coincidental to make it more believable <laughs> because the truth is just so like you're just it, it, it was like the same within like 24 hours of uh, or w- within hours of the new york times pub, they, they not only fired me but they 
made my firing public. They wrote an editor's note. I think it was on the eight, page A2, the very second page of the front section of the Times, where they said, you know, I'd been caught. Here's what I did. Ultimate humiliation. Here's who I am. And here's the guy who's not going to write for us anymore. And I was like, I just lost my name. I just lost my reputation. I just lost my name. And literally, I think within 90 minutes of that being published on the website, uh, I received a call from a a reporter from the Portland Oregonian informing me that at the same moment that I was about to lose my name, someone had taken on my identity. And it just seems, it seems like I'm not a, I'm not a devoutly religious person, but boy, if there's ever a case for divine intervention, like I was completely floored. I'm like, I'm like, suddenly like you're, you're kidding me. You know, if you get fired, you, you might've lost your job, but you don't lose your journalistic instincts. And suddenly you're, I'm like, I have to know more. And of course the reporter's like, well, this guy is arrested, extradited from Mexico and he's not speaking with anyone. And that stopped me, not a wit. And, uh, we ended up, uh, oh, exchanging a thousand pages of handwritten letters and spoke on the phone dozens upon dozens of times. And I attended every minute of his trial, trying to determine whether this guy was telling the truth or lying. And it was a most fascinating and deeply upsetting uh, game of uh, cat and mouse. I mean, that has to be like the most crazy emotional, like water slide you've ever been on because at the exact same time that you think your career is ending, you're getting this opportunity to do like what you think is you know, one of the most exciting things that's ever happened to you in a terrifying way. But and then uh, so there, there's there's that instance of the book itself. And then there's the instance of like, you you know, you sold the movie to Brad Pitt's film company or you sold the book to Brad Pitt's film company and they created a movie with James Franco and Jonah Hill. And I'm, I'm just curious, like how you handled that part of it, because I know that, you know, truthful reporting is so important to you. But kind of the identity of Hollywood is like taking their own like creative leanings. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, this is obviously not the first time I've talked about this story. But even so, every time I talk about it, I cannot it's I cannot believe it. Like it it, it never the the bizarreness, the emotional sort of fraughtness of the whole thing is has never faded. Like I'm so uncomfortable talking about it, yet I, I do talk about it, yet it's I, I, I listened to the, my own words coming out of my mouth and I'm like, this is not believable. This didn't really happen, but it, it absolutely did. So that's the pre- preface to it. Yes, you're right. There's, there, there's a sort of humorousness about like, okay, so this guy, Chris Longo, took on my identity and then, uh, and then suddenly you know James Franco and Jonah Hill are taking on the roles of the guy who took on my identity. There's all these sort of overlapping like fictionalizations upon fictionalizations when all I want to do is get to the truth and the irony of that is not lost on me. And I have no great conclusions to make except for the fact that uh, that is just a crazy incident that I cannot possibly contain in some sort of barrel. It's just, you know, it, it keeps leaking out and, uh, and touching me. But yes, you're right. If you want to say, yeah. So Hollywood fictionalized something that I had to be absolutely, you know, I called the book true story and the movie was called true story. But of course the film is with actors, you know, and, and scenes that are invented. If you want to point out all the bizarreness and, uh, and, and contradictions about that, I will shake your hand and say, you're absolutely correct. I've also thought of it and I have no great conclusions to say, except, uh, except every time I think about it, a little bit of my brain leaks out one of my ears. I was going to say, how much, uh, how much were you, when you were watching the process of them converting your book to the movie, how, how much, uh, like, 
how much were you wishing you could get involved in building that same sort of narrative with them? Were you allowed to be involved in the in the process of writing the screenplay at all? No, I wasn't. Um, so this, this this is I won't I won't answer this question at great length, but uh, since I'm one of the characters in the movie, the um, producers really were worried that I would be too hands on and not want to make myself look bad. Where I'm I'm not saying I'm happy to make myself look bad, but I'm able to <laughs> I'm, be, I'm able to understand that to make this story work, you have to. I mean. Sh- I lied to the New York Times and got fired. Like there's no really whitewashing that. You should I should look bad. But anyway, they asked me to keep a distance. And so I did, and it wasn't comfortable. And then there's this whole other patina over it that if there's a jocular tone in my voice, I apologize because at the, at the heart of it are, of course, not to not to bring a gloomy uh, a curtain down upon our, our conversation, but mm. there's three dead children and a dead wife and, a, and, and then their, their families. And there's a lot of grieving and pain there. And it, it's nothing's ever comfortable. But on the other hand, it is a great story in terms of like just a, a story itself, but it's also incredibly tragic. And so all those things are wrapped up and there's, as I think I said at the outset, I, rather than trying to avoid any of these complications, I embrace them and say that this is just a, 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 a they're, this is a very complicated story because the truth of the matter is that a guy who murdered his family helped me personally revive my career. And I've never been able to sort of uh, feel comfortable with that fact. I also can't imagine a better sort of challenge preparation than the one you're describing for what you did for Stranger in the Woods, which is another another, uh, personality who commits crimes over a long period of time and then refuses to talk to anybody but you. Yeah, I am. Uh, I, I, I don't write a lot. I, I've only really written two books and I take my time. I have to choose stories that are... Listen, who walks into a bookstore and says there's not enough books in the world? I mean, I, 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 I'm only going to write one if I feel like, okay, let's kill a few more trees and add another one to this massive collection that nobody's ever going to finish before they die. You know, it's like, I, I feel like to, if I'm going to write a book, it has to be truly a spectacular story. Now, you can decide whether you like the writing or the book or anything, but I'm telling you, I feel not only in my gut, but all from the top of my balding head to the, my very biggest toe that this is a fantastic story or else I won't write a book about it. Uh, and um, you're, you're right. Uh, Chris Knight, Christopher Knight, the hermit is another, oh, just put it mildly, outlier character. He has nothing in common with the murderer except for sharing the first name, Chris. But both were... And the fact that I wrote I wrote books about them, but uh, you know, Chris Longo, the murderer, was you know couldn't stop talking, couldn't stop spinning tales, couldn't stop you know I couldn't. It was my whole challenge was where do the where do the lies end and the truth begins, or can you even tell if there's no other witnesses? And with Chris Knight, the hermit, he was almost. What's the opposite of being a pathological liar, a pathological truth teller, like almost incapable of telling a lie, almost. Uh, almost uh, um, annoyingly precise, like he spoke very few words. And when he did, they had to be just almost perfectly honed. And if like, I remember him telling me like, oh, the moment you left the woods, he, he left his, he abandoned his car in the woods of Maine. It, he just bought a, a new car a year before. He left his keys in the center console and uh, 
walked into the woods for 27 years, which seems to me dramatic. And I said, oh, so you, you know, Chris, uh, the, the, the hermit, so you tossed your keys in, in the car and, and walked into the woods for 27 years. He's like, no, 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 that's not accurate at all. I didn't toss my keys. I put them down. And I was like, okay, okay, you just put them down. You didn't toss them. Like this guy was, this guy was so precise at everything. <laughs> toss so cavalier. I placed. I was like, okay. And so this guy was the hermit was so precise in his telling that every word had to be just so. And uh, the other one, the murderer, everything was a big fat lie. By the way, Chris Longo was guilty of all the murders. In case you're wondering, I give the ending away. Yeah, and so he. Uh there was a line in the in the film. Um, I don't remember the actor's name, but he was in Boy Meets World at one point. Um, he was the the reporter. <laughs> he was the reporter from the Portland Oregonian in the story, where he plays the reporter, and he says, you know, in this like really you know prescient line, um, you know, do you think that Christian Longo? De- I'm not sure that Christian Longo Longo's story deserves to be told. And uh, you know, you can you can put that same argument. Within a different scope with Christopher Knight, uh, you know, maybe he doesn't want his story to be told. Um, I mean, did you like what kind of thought process did you put into this for both of your books? Uh, Because there is I mean, we've been experimenting with, uh, you know, that question a lot in the last few years when it comes to the whole question of, uh, you know, like everything that's been going on in politics and religion and, and just life in general. But like what, how do you determine like what story deserves or should be told and like, you know, why you are the right person to tell them? I'm actually very glad that you answered, asked this question. Um, It's something I think about a lot. So briefly with the hermit, Christopher Knight, the hermit, never wanted to come out of the woods. He was arrested. He was not, he did not voluntarily leave the woods and Frankly, if he had his druthers, his story never would have been told. He wanted to be absolutely a private person. Um, and I think right into, I think, I think in the very last paragraph of The Stranger in the Woods, the book, I mentioned that this story might have been better not told, which is a funny sort of thing to put at the very end of your book, but I mean it. Um, and of course, Chris Longo is a murderer who killed his wife and three children and is on death row at this moment and needs no attention. Now, both of those things are facts and I feel like I'm being an anti-salesman for my book, but I'm telling you, I thought about these things at length and that there is an element of reader discomfort about both these subjects. And in my opinion, that makes the story better. You read this and you're uncomfortable. Now, I don't know if you guys like uh, comedies like Curb Your Enthusiasm or even the British version of The Office or even the American version where viewer discomfort is part (laughs) of the artistry of those shows. There's a little reader discomfort going on in my books. You're reading something and you might feel for the stranger in the woods, a touch like a voyeur. Now, the guy who arrested him told me uh, he was a, the police officer. He's like, this guy committed a thousand felonies. He basically tortured people that lived around the ponds. People were having their houses broken into repeatedly. He made many people feel uncomfortable for years upon years upon years. If he speaks to you voluntarily, which by the way, he spoke to me voluntarily. I didn't force him to speak to me. I wrote him letters and he wrote me back. He never had to answer him. He got 500 letters from journalists and responded as far as I know, only to my letters. Uh, he 
accepted every visit in jail, he could have just said no, as he did to many other people. So I felt okay, but not 100% morally clear. And I think the fact that in both my stories, there's moral fogginess makes them better stories, but not, you don't like whistle Dixie before you go to bed. I think there's a little bit of discomfort in there. And if you're the type of person who who likes to watch movies that are challenging or experience you know, go to a go to a go to a show at the at the, at the Met or or mobile or an art exhibit that is slightly uncomfortable. I love that stuff. You know, love is maybe the weird weird word, but I like to feel strong feelings. Then it makes the stories better. But that doesn't mean I'm right or that it's morally clear. And I fully admit that I live in a morally unclear world with my stories, but I do them anyway. And if that makes you just absolutely livid, don't buy the books. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it is a really important distinction that I, I think, you know, not a lot of people are forced to actually discuss it, you know, and you have been kind of uh, like thrown to the wolves when it comes to that. So I, and I, I do have to say, though, as well, that uh, I'm curious anyway, you know, what the reaction has been since uh, the book came out. You know, have you spoken with Chris? I know you mentioned it kind of towards the end of the book, but you know, the version that we have read, I think, was a couple years old. Uh, and, and also, on that same note, it's a little uh, irony for you that these same publications that you you know struggled to to write for over the last twenty or thirty years are now you know kind of praising the the style of your writing within this book. Well, first of all, the the book, as we discussed, is factually as accurate as, I'll just say it, as humanly possible. Um, so the reaction to, uh, so The Stranger in the Woods, uh, the, about uh, the, the Hermit, you know, it came out almost exactly a year ago. It came out the 7th of March and just came out in hardcover a few weeks, a uh, softcover a few weeks ago. So it's it's not very old, but, uh, and I feel like. The, so the softcover is, is, an, is it updated or is it the same text as was in the hardcover? Same text. So uh, okay. The Hermit himself, Christopher Knight, granted me, he, we exchanged letters over the course of a, of, a, of a summer, and then he granted me nine one-hour interviews in jail and one lengthy interview after he was released from jail. This isn't giving much away. And then said to me, Mike, I don't want to be your friend. We're not friends. Sometimes there's this relationship that develops between a journalist and a subject that kind of feels like a friendship. But this guy's a true hermit. He said, leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you again. I said, Chris, uh, would you... I, I said, Chris, I promise I won't bother you again, but please, if you want to get in touch, will you write me a letter? And he said he would. And we've both held up our side of the uh, the bargain. I have not bothered Chris Knight again, and he has not written me a letter. Now, I sent him my book as soon as it was available. This was months before it was actually um, uh, for sale to the general public, and I heard nothing back. Uh, I had written a magazine article about him previously uh, in, in in the course of writing the book, and I did talk to him afterwards, and he he said that there were parts of the magazine article that he liked and parts that he didn't like, but that overall he respected the work. And I hope that he feels the same um, about the book. In fact, I, I assume he does. The uh, The tone is similar. And, and with Chris Longo, by the way, the murderer, you know, some people say, how could you write something about a guy who's purely evil? And really, you can, I guess, apply that label to someone who kills their wife and three children. And I say, you have two you know, choices. If someone's purely evil, you can run away in the other direction and not learn a thing, or you can look them dead in the eye, as I did, 
And here was a guy who was willing to share with me, this is the murderer, his innermost thoughts. And what can you learn from someone like that? Perhaps you can learn some traits that might allow some other wife and children to avoid the same fate. I say, if you see something horrible, look at it. Don't run away in the other direction. It's important as a journalist to learn from that, from war, from things that are horrific, and that just labeling something evil and not worthy of your attention is a mistake. That's my opinion. Um, I think there. this is a nice opportunity to transition as we come close uh, to, the, to the time we have allotted for today, to transition to the story that you struggled to tell. Um, and the one that I'm specifically thinking of in reference to the ones you sent along before is Desperate Passage, which is another instance of you taking... Uh, on the outside was a horrific situation and applying humanity and uh, observation to it. So can you tell us about that story, why you struggled to tell it, and sort of how you've grown since then? So the this was my first uh, major story for the New York Times magazine. Um, it was about uh, the risks that Haitian people were willing to take to try and sneak into the United States. There's a lot of uh, desperate uh, poverty in Haiti. And there's a weird United States policy where people from Cuba, which is a much, much wealthier country, still a lot of poverty, could come take a boat to uh, Florida and step on the shore and be granted asylum because Cuba has a communist or had a communist government. It's unclear what their government is now. And Haiti had, quote unquote, a democratic government. And as soon as they were, as soon as a Haitian person stepped on the shore, they would be arrested and deported because that's the way it worked. And rather than taking any politics into account or trying to like talk to presidents or you know pol- uh, uh, ministers or people that were talking heads, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be interesting just to see the p- actual people that were trying to get onto one of these boats? And I went with a dear friend of mine and amazing photographer named Chris Anderson another Chris in my life, Christopher Anderson. And we spent weeks upon weeks upon weeks in Haiti trying to figure out how does a person in Haiti find person who's building this boat, how much do they have to pay them, how do they get a seat on this boat, and then how can we do this? And to say that it was difficult is a deep understatement. At first, people just assumed we were members FBI or CIA or some sort of like people trying to um, – uh, disrupt this system. And it took a long, a lot of convincing to explain that. No, I don't think we would go through so much trouble. Uh, we said that we just wanted to document these voyages. We mentioned the apparent unfairness of, um, of the difference between the Cuban policy and the Haitian policy. And then we, we had to convince the boat owner to accept us. And we didn't even, we this took weeks upon weeks and eventually you know a very long and complicated short story short we were granted two seats on this boat which was 23 feet long made entirely out of uh, hand hewn like timbers that were like cut from trees and not only was it nailed together but it was nailed together with like nails that were stolen from other boats and you can imagine that people were stealing nails from each other's boats and trying to pound these things together absolutely no um, navigational equipment at all, just one sort of ready sail. Um, and I think the boat could probably hold, if anybody knows anything about boats, a 23-foot boat will hold probably five or six people comfortably. There were 46 people on board, 
most of us jammed into the hold. And I remember thinking pretty much the entire time that this was not only a mistake, but quite possibly going to be a fatal mistake. I had a couple of safety bits of equipment on me, but I was including a uh, life vest that you can inflate. But I was thinking the moment I inflated it, everyone would just jump on me if this boat was uh, sinking. And then a, 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 like a, a thing that could create, uh, it's called an EPIRB. Anybody who's into boats knows about this emergency positioning radio indicating beacon that would, if triggered, would supposedly uh, uh, send a sort of silent alarm. And within hopefully 24 hours, um, someone might be able to find us, meaning we would have to just tread water for, oh, you know, 24 hours uh, in, in, in waters that are pretty, uh, oh, filled with sharks, et cetera. Um, and this was all just to document a voyage from what I call the ground level. And um, I, 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 you know, we could probably talk about this for another hour, uh, the difficulties I've, I've glossed over. But as you can imagine, gaining trust and then actually getting aboard the boat. And I do remember very vividly, like, deciding to step from the dock onto this boat and like sort of looking at Chris Anderson, the photographer and be like, this is probably the point of no return and quite possibly, uh, you know, someone's going to get ready to write our obituary, but it really wasn't about myself or about Chris Anderson. It was really about the other 44 Haitians on the boat trying to get to the United States. That's really the story. And there was really no other way to tell it as viscerally as actually witnessing it. And I don't for a moment pretend to know what it feels like to be a Haitian refugee, but I, as a con, it between readers and actual Haitian refugees, I tried my very hardest to capture that. And I can say with great authority that I have never uh, had more misgivings and uh, fraught moments than uh, tackling the story, which later became a piece for the, for the New York Times Magazine, I think, like you mentioned, called Desperate Passage. And so... There's been a lot of uh, personal and professional distance now for you between this story and where you are today. Is there anything that through the lens of today, you look back on that story that you wish you'd done differently? I'm sure. Um, um, let me think about that. You know, there's no rule books for... I mean, when you look back on something, uh, mistakes were made. I'm thinking of almost every story I've done is flashing through my mind, including like the, the hermit story I just wrote, <laughs> mistakes were made if I can go back and do it. But when you're dealing with like unique situations, how does someone get on a boat uh, that actually has, I, I figured I wasn't doing, it's not illegal to sneak into the United States if you have a US passport is what I was thinking. Like, I, of course, mistakes were made. I, I, I said the wrong things to people <laughs> and were set back a week. I, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I bought too many beers for the wrong person person, et cetera. Like, of course, I would probably redo a million things. But in the time, you know, my, my, my goal was to legitimately get on board of a, a, get on board a boat. And I was successful. And it, it's sort of a, it, I feel like your question is both fascinating and like sort of unfair, because in, in, in the moment when you have a million decisions to make, it's like, you know, asking uh, a football player, you know, uh, you know, if he would have redone any plays, of course, of course, but you, you don't really... I don't really think that way. So of, of course I would have redone it, but there's just no way to redo it. So I, I find it, I, I think about that all the time for learning about like, for example, I'm an amateur mountaineer and when someone dies in the mountains, I'm, oh, I have to read everything about that. Not because of a, I'm curious about uh, people's death, though, I, though as a journalist I am, but also what could I avoid in the future? So I think about my mistakes and rather than think about what, what I would have done, I think about what I would do next 
time if any similar situation comes back. I hope I didn't sidestep that question too much, but I answered it as honestly as possible. No, I think the I think the the there's a difference in lens here because I'm an editor by trade. That's my day job. I do it, you know, eight hours a day, forty hours a week, and I look back at things that I've made even two years ago, like as recent as two years ago. And when I watch them, I cringe because there are cuts that I would change. There's color choices that I would change. There's interview bits that I would drop in that aren't in there right now. It's basically looking back and wishing I could re-edit today what I had done two years ago. And it's worse. You know, The farther you go back in my professional career, the more I would do to change the things that I've done, which I don't think is healthy. But I just wonder if you have that same sort of lens now where you would drop a paragraph here, add a paragraph there. Yeah, I would change every sentence. But I have to tell you what you just said is... <laughs> Good. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. Imagine if you had said the opposite. Man, I was doing such great stuff two years ago. It sucks now. And 10 years ago, it was even better. And it sucks totally now. If you don't look back and you aren't a little embarrassed, it means you aren't getting better. That's the way I look at it. Like, if you're not slightly abashed, if you're not slightly like, oh my God, I'd be so much better now. Like, that's a good thing. That's the way I look at it. Like, thank goodness you were worse in the past. What If you were better in the past, that would be worse. <laughs> that's what I have to say. Uh, the competing voice in my head accuses me of pretension. It's like, no, you're not better. You're just, you just think you're better than you were. Everything is the same and you're just kidding yourself. No, you're better. But in two years, you're going to be embarrassed about this interview right here. And I'm certainly going to be embarrassed about it. Maybe oh, like, yeah, maybe absolutely. Like, maybe in like 15 minutes, I'm going to be like, I can't believe I just said all that stuff. But yeah. <laughs> so when we talk in two years. That's the editing process for us. When we re-talk again yeah. in like two or 10 years, it'll be a much better interview. This one's just going to be terrible compared to the one that we're going to do in the future. Right, I'll, put it, I'll put it on the calendar. <laughs> the reckoning. It, yeah. Just make a, a calendar invite for five years from now. Do a better interview. <laughs> <laughs> answer, answer more pithily and with better, uh, better word choice and remember the damn name uh, uh, you know, of all the movies and actors. Um, <laughs> especially if you use the word adaptation in a sentence and you can't even remember the film. Anyway. <laughs> 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 well thank you mike we really appreciate you uh you joining us where, where can our listeners find you oh uh, they can find me in the south of france or on the internet at michaelfinkel.com it's a very rhymey funny name michaelfinkel.com if you uh send me a note through my contact me good bad or indifferent i'll get back to you don't hold your breath for the swiftness of my response but there will be one michaelfinkel.com This has been a production of Writers Who Don't Write, brought to you by the Podglomerate Network. Our guest today was Mike Finkel. You can find him online at mikefinkel.com. He's on Twitter, Facebook, all of the things. And as he said in the interview, you can shoot him an email with any questions and he will respond. It might not be fast, but he'll do it. You can find us online at www.podcast.com. You can also find us at www.podcast.com on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and let us know what you thought of this interview. Uh, if you really enjoyed this interview because of the nature of the, the writing in particular and uh, the fact that Mike writes for all of these outdoor magazines, I recommend you check out an interview we did about a year ago with Blair Braverman, who is a female dog sled racer. She's amazing. You should check out one of our other shows, such as Status, which is the story of immigration and people. Uh, it's basically immigration policy and the people that it affects. It's really brilliant from Matt Horton. You can check out uh, the first season of Plus 7 Intelligence, which is uh, all about video games and how they impact people. And if you want to laugh, check out Two Girls, One Podcast, where they interview uh, people who are part of um, like weird internet subcultures. Uh, and 
you know, I don't want to say that they humanize them. They do, but you know, that's not like a great description of the show. You're just going to laugh and, and experience something brand new. So thank you so much. We'll be back in two weeks with another interview. I really appreciate all the time that you spent with us. The music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library. And the music that you heard in the middle of the hour is from Ben Sound of bensound.com. Thanks again, guys. We'll see you next week. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.